This is Live to Lead Radio, episode number three, Restoring Harmony When Your Life is Out of Tune. I'm your host, Kristen Smith. Inspiring leaders want to break the excellence barrier by reaching greater heights. They are ready to unlock higher performance by expanding their horizons to capture sustained, desirable outcomes for both business and life application. But there's a problem. Many leaders today are tapped out, immobilized, and feel completely unfulfilled. Why? Because of unnecessary distraction and lack of the right support, leaving them completely off course. Live to Lead offers up the opportunity to gain insight, shift perspectives, and get inspired by listening to stories from everyday leaders just like you. I'm calling each and every one of you out right now to own your bold responsibility to lead powerfully today, tomorrow, and into the future. Are you with me? Good. Let's begin. This episode has been brewing for a few weeks now, and I'm so excited that we're finally here because I really want to get this guest in the hands of you because he has so many crystal clear perspectives on certain topics in life, and he's an incredible influencer, motivator, author, and speaker. So let me give you a little history about Mark. He graduated from the United States Air Force Academy in 82. After nine years as a pilot on active duty, he left the military to join a commercial airline. In addition to flying a B-737 around the country, Mark spends a lot of time in the Rocky Mountains and serves on the artistic staff of the Colorado Children's Corral. He lives in Centennial, Colorado with his wife and four children. So here's where it gets exciting. Mark recognized years ago that patterns were developing around events in his life. Sometimes it was good stuff and sometimes it was not so good. But in the end, everything just always seemed to work out. Was that just a matter of chance or was it something he could rely on? After several years of journaling about that reality, Mark broke his neck in a mountain bike accident near Moab, Utah, but that did not slow him down. He travels around the country inspiring groups of all sizes, and he teaches us to use three simple steps to create our best lives, and he shares the glue that holds it all together. His book, The Symphony of Your Life, Restoring Harmony When Your World is Out of Tune, is an award-winning book that has hit first place three times, and it is available on hardcover on Amazon.com or in your favorite ebook format. Let me say the name of the book again so that you have it. It is a must read. The Symphony of Your Life, Restoring Harmony When Your World is Out of Tune. Okay, without... Any further delay, let's get Mark on the lines with us. Good morning. How are you today? Oh, I'm outstanding. It's a lovely Colorado blue day. 
Uh, sun's out. Uh, temperature's great. Uh, you know, what's what's not to be great about? Well, good. Awesome. So this morning you sent me this really neat clip, and I believe it was a message that you were giving your passengers before your flight. And I have to say, before I go into that, I start every morning with a leadership devotion, and the title of it was Leaders Speak to Transform, Not Merely Inform. And then your clip came to me today, and I thought, wow. Wow, that's so true because your message was a message of comfort and you weren't just informing them, but you were trying to transform their thinking and ease some nerves. Why that was important for me was, do you feel as a captain, as a leader, that that's so important and why? Absolutely. And the reason behind it is because in our relentless pursuit of efficiency in the airline industry, we've created a process that is at best uncomfortable for our passengers. I mean, if you think about it, they get dropped off at the curb at the front of the airport. They have to go stand in line to drop off their bags at the ticket counter. Then they go down to security and they go through that uh, another line and to have a very unpleasant experience of being searched by the TSA. And then at, in Denver, they go downstairs to the basement, get on this train, you know, with a disembodied voice on it uh, saying, you know, please continue to hold on. Please continue to hold. And, and they go out to the concourse, uh, you know, with this robot talking to them, already crammed into this small space. And they come up from the uh, train terminal. They're up to the gate. And that's the first opportunity from the time they've been dropped off at the curb to sit down and maybe catch their breath a little bit and, and regather themselves before the next event where they're crammed into these boarding corrals and then they go down the jet bridge and, and start working on getting their bags put away and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a very stressful situation. My hope is that my first opportunity to touch them becomes a, a, a transformative moment. I want them to pivot at that point and change from being stressed to getting excited and more comfortable about the actual journey. So I do a couple things. Uh, one is I actually talk to the passengers. I, I do a boarding PA, and in that, I, I tell them a little bit about the flight, and I stand there in all my regalia, you know, with my hat on and my jacket buttoned. And so I want them to come away with two things. I want them to understand that after this uh, gauntlet that they've run through, that I see them. I see them as people, as humans, and so I'm talking to them eye to eye, which is the second point. I allow them to lay eyes on me, and so often when passengers get in an airplane, they don't see the pilots, the guys who are actually controlling their destiny for the next several hours. The pilots at best are most frequently just another disembodied voice as the passengers sitting in the back. They hear this voice over the, the aircraft PA, but I give them the opportunity to size me up. And if what I say is, is helpful to them, then not only do uh, they understand that I see them as a human, but they see me as being competent. And without even realizing it, their stress level goes down. They now see that the person who is in charge, not just this disembodied voice, exudes this air of competence and you know, on a subconscious level, many, many flyers are still just a little bit nervous about this business of, you know, flying across the country at 80% of the speed of sound with 180 human bodies and, you know, 25,000 pounds of jet fuel. 
so, so they want to know if the guy who's in charge is going to get them there safely. And even if they don't know that at the top of their mind, they do in their gut. So I want to kind of put them at ease, give them the opportunity to relax a little bit before they start the next leg of their journey going down the jet bridge. Now, I do that, I do a couple of things. In addition to the PA, I only have a limited opportunity to touch my passengers. But the folks who are on my service staff have more of an opportunity. So before the passengers ever even arrive, I have a conversation with my customer service representatives there at the gate. And I enlist them onto what I consider or what I call a rapidly forming short duration team. And I create this team that's going to build on what I do for my passengers. So after I do the PA, if I've created the relationship with my customer service representatives, then my passengers interaction with them is another positive touch. And then they move down into the cabin. And by that point, I've already had a detailed briefing with my flight attendants in which I, I share my value with them and I make them feel valued and validated. So by the time the passengers arrive to them, my, my flight attendants are excited, ready to see them. And the next touch is a positive touch. Then my passengers are able to decompress a little bit. They get comfortable in the cabin and they're ready to have a positive experience on the flight. So that's, that's my goal. Um, in, in doing that. Wow. That, you said so many important things. You talked a lot about the importance of communication, also with your team, making sure they feel valued and validated. And it seems that as a captain, as a leader, as an author, and you speak about this a lot in your book, which we'll talk about in just a second, you are very good at seizing the opportunity to inspire and transform. Now, let me take you back in the beginning stages of your career as as an airline pilot, did you always have this vision? Did you always start off this way? Or did you yourself transform into a different leader? Wow. Um, you know, talk about uh, something out of the blue. You know, I grew up in a small town in Georgia. I lived right next to the municipal airport. Used to love going up there and standing with my fingers through the chain link fence and watch the airplanes do their touch and goes and whatnot. But by the time I got ready to go off and, and start my work life, you know, go off to college and get some training, it had become apparent that I was not medically qualified to be a pilot. My vision was not good enough, but it was good enough to be a navigator in the Air Force. So I thought, you know, it's a flying job. And if I could get that paid for through a scholarship or, or some other way, all the better. So I, I applied for the Air Force Academy and was, was admitted. Uh, but it took me two tries. I wasn't admitted to the Air Force Academy immediately out of high school. Turns out my application was good enough, but I'd sort of drug my feet. And there's, there's another story there. So by the time they processed my application, the class was full. So I had to go to a gear college outside of the academy and then went to the academy to, to join the class in 1982. And my thinking was I would go through the academy, become a navigator, fly for six or seven years as a navigator, and then maybe leave the Air Force, maybe stay in the Air Force. But by then, you know, I would have had six more years of maturity and I'd have a better idea what I wanted to do with my life. Well, then early in my senior year, in one of the, the very few rare instances of foresight that I observed in this great bureaucracy known as the Air Force within another great bureaucracy known as the government, somebody recognized that seven years down the road, they were going to be short of pilots in my year group. So they changed the rules. Just like that, all of a sudden, they started handing out medical waivers like candy, and my vision became good enough. It was no longer an impediment, and I became eligible to become a pilot. 
you know, and, and the rest, you know, as they say, is history. Uh, had I not gotten that waiver, I wouldn't have been a pilot in the Air Force. Uh, if I hadn't been a pilot in the Air Force, I wouldn't be an airline captain today, and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. One of the lessons there, and there, there are myriad lessons there, but one of the lessons there is to step out in faith and put ourselves in the path of success. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I knew I wanted to be around aviation if I could. I had no aspiration. Well, I had aspiration, but I didn't have any realistic expectation of becoming an actual pilot. But I went off in that direction anyway. By being in that place at that time, you know, fortune smiled on me, and I had this this great good fortune. Interesting sidelight. I was deeply disappointed that I didn't get into the academy, you know, right after high school. Had I gotten in there, that I would have been in the class of 1981. Now, the class of 1981 did not receive those vision waivers, nor did the class of 1983, nor did any other commissioning source like ROTC. Only at the academy and only in the class of 1982. You know, had I gotten into the academy my first try, we would, again, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So there's another lesson there. You know, when you want something, stay in the process. You know, don't give up just because you, you're up against an obstacle. It ain't over till it's over. You, you haven't really failed until you give up. You know, so I, I chose to stay in that process, go to a year of, of college before the academy, reapply, go through the whole thing all over again. And that ultimately led to where I am today. So right there, you talk about flexibility, adaptability, being open, you know, not giving up, not throwing in the towel. And so many people do. They think no means no forever and no can be just not right now. This brings me to another point there. You almost didn't get selected in your interview process by somebody from the HR department. And you had a little visit in your cabin after a pre-flight announcement. <laughs> which surprised you. But tell me a little bit about that. Oh, my goodness. You never know where your allies are. Sometimes you, you see your allies, sometimes you don't. The story you're referring to is, uh, I'll just start where the story began for me. I, I was in the cockpit one day, and as you mentioned, it's not unusual for us to introduce ourselves by name to the passengers. That day, I was that disembodied voice. I had not done a PA. This was many years ago while I was still a co-pilot. I had announced my name over the PA as I was welcoming the passengers. I had no sooner stopped the PA than some guy came charging up into the cockpit, looked over over at me and said, hey, I'm so-and-so. I was one of your interview captains back when you first interviewed for United. And let me just tell you what happened. Interestingly, he said, uh, you know, there were, there were two in interviewers. There was a captain, him, and then there was a representative from the HR department. The interview was just grueling, but I felt pretty good about it when it was all said and done. I knew I'd given it a good shot. And, uh, you know, whether, regardless of the outcome, I knew I would sleep well based on how the interview had gone. Turns out that after I left the room, the two of them sat down to compare notes, and the HR representative said, you know, I think I'm going to shoot this guy down. And the captain was incredulous. He said, what are you talking about? He just gave great answers. I mean, here's this guy who's just come back from the Persian Gulf War. He's uh, combat time. He's, he's flown a, a, an aircraft. He's commanded an aircraft with 34 crew members. He answered all of the technical questions. He answered the personnel questions. I thought, just fine. Why are you going to do this? She said, oh, well, I'm not. I'm not really sure. I just have this gut feeling that he's not, not going to be really a good fit for United Airlines. And this guy just went through the roof. He said, all right, look, no, that's not good enough. You got to have a concrete reason if you don't. Basically, he went to bat for me and said, we're going to hire this guy, 
period. And, and they did. Ultimately, obviously, I was hired. I've flown for this company now for 26 years, you know, well and faithfully giving them service. But I had no idea. I had no idea that this conflict had occurred and certainly not that this guy had gone out on a limb. He had basically said, if you don't hire this guy, I'm going to resign from the interview committee and I'm going to make sure everybody at the training center knows why. So, I mean, he took a stand on my behalf. I, I didn't find out till years later. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that well, crazy? It is. mm-hmm. It's just crazy. So you, you never, you never know. And again, uh, it's a matter of stepping out in faith, putting yourself in, um, in the path of success, doing everything in one's own power, and then letting letting things work out the way they're supposed to work out. It was, it was a just an incredible, incredible thing. So the other thing is now, all right, how can I be someone else's ally? And, you know, and there are more stories about that in my book. But that's a that's a, another lesson we can take away. First of all, we never know where our allies are. And second is I look for opportunities to be an ally for somebody else in the same way. You really do. You really do. Your life experiences, the stories in your book, all of that speak volumes to that. So we, we're, we're speaking about allies and not knowing when people are stepping up to bat for us, not knowing where they are. They're around us or surrounding us. I'm going to throw out a question here. What about your critics? What about critics? How do you personally and professionally deal with that? Because so many people shut down when they are faced with critics and it stops them. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. Um, it, it depends on uh, how personally we choose to take criticism. I, I, I try to kind of recharacterize that uh, not as criticism, but as critique. You know, I, I think it's uh, I think it's in the book, The Four Agreements. There there are a number of uh, th- those are four fantastic points that we can build our lives on. You know, be impeccable with your word. And it, it's never personal. And that's the one I'm thinking about right now. They may intend it to be personal, but I, I can choose whether to take it personally or not. My general outlook and I'm human. I, I have feet of clay. I'm not perfect about this. But my intent is to take critique on board and use it to learn and grow and improve. And if what they say is valid, then I'm better for it. If what they say is not valid, as far as I'm concerned, no harm, no foul. You know, again, it was it was more about them than it was about me. Uh, and, and, you know, it works better sometimes than others. You know, when when I've uh, just been out on, on the road for six days and I'm absolutely whacked, I'm more vulnerable to criticism than, you know, when I've been at home and resting and working on my uh, writing and speaking and I'm all pumped up. And I understand that we all show up to life as we are. It's it's about mindset and intention. So I, I would offer that to your readers. If we can generate or create a mindset of acceptance and kindness to ourselves, willingness to take on board criticism as critique and learn from what we can and grow and stretch, criticism need not be hurtful. Another quick story. When I was at the academy, my English teacher talked about his writing teacher and he said, man, that guy made me stretch. And then he, he threw out this pejorative, called him a name. It was painful. The stretching and the growing is painful. It's not easy, but we're always better for it. I, I was just fascinated by that because I never heard that concept before when I was at college. I have found it to be, well, certainly true. Whenever ever we're in a situation where we are given the opportunity to grow or stretch, it's almost always painful, but we're almost always far better off for having been through that process. 
Oh, it's so true. And, and, and many of us forget that and we forget it when we're in the midst of it, but we have to always keep that as the forefront reminder. I love that you said that. So let's shift gears just a little bit. You are busy as an airline pilot and you're also an author and you clearly inspire people through your speaking, your writing, your career. So let's just Thank talk. You a, you're very welcome. I know when we first talked a couple weeks ago, I felt great after speaking with you. You just have a contagious energy. Your heart is to serve others. And even there's a chapter in your book that this isn't about you. You know, there's just so much more that goes into things that we don't even consider and we need to remind ourselves. But let's talk about just your book for just a second. Just tell me a little bit about that. You know, how did you get there? How did you find the time? What was the catalyst to say, I'm doing this? and I'm going to launch something. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as an airline pilot, uh, some time back, the airline industry went into a, a tailspin. We call it the lost decade. Several of the major airlines declared bankruptcy. It was a dark, dark time. There were pay cuts, pension losses. It was just a, a, a very unfortunate, painful period. And when my company went bankrupt and, and we took all these pay cuts, we all started looking for another way to generate income. I mean, because for three years, uh, over three years, we didn't know if my company was going to emerge from the bankruptcy or if it was just going to go away. And pilots are the kind of people that don't take that kind of thing laying down. We, uh, you know, we, we look for ways to uh, respond and recover. So, I mean, we all went out and got our real estate licenses and we all signed up to sell multi-level marketing vitamins, you know, those kinds of things. We, we put our spouses, our kids uh, to work. Sort of always in the back of my mind, I didn't just want a job. I wanted whatever my alternative career path was going to be to be meaningful. I've since learned that that's, that's a common thing. You ever heard of a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl by chance? Yeah, Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. In 1946, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. In that, his central theme is that life's not so much a quest for pleasure or power as it is a search for meaning. So we all, at, at some level, want our lives to be meaningful. I want our work to be meaningful. So as I was looking for a different career path, I was I had that in the back of my mind. So sure enough, you know, we're always we, in the cockpit. We were always asking each other, okay, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And I flew with this fellow who happens to live uh, just north of here in Fort Collins. Uh, we flew together from San Francisco to Frankfurt, and there we were in the middle of the night over the North Atlantic talking about this. And he said, yeah, he says, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. He said, I actually just got back from the annual meeting of a big tech company that you would recognize, and they paid me a tidy sum to give a 45-minute keynote at their annual meeting. They brought my entire family along, gave us six days at Disney World, and they bought a whole bunch of my books. And when he told me the amount they had paid him for that keynote, I thought, okay, I'm listening. And actually, it was, it was an epiphany. Boom. I mean, there he was doing well while doing good. And I thought, okay, there it is. And he, and he says to me, he says, you know, Mark, you've got decades of stories that you've paid for with your life that might be of value to people who hear them. He said, go write a book. And so at that point, the symphony of your life was born. I started writing my manuscript and I stayed very in close touch with this, this fellow. His name also happens to be Mark. So Mark and I became close friends. He became my mentor and I've followed on his coattails ever since. But that's how it got started. It, was, it came out of this sense of necessity and it's turned into a mission. And, and actually it's since become even a legacy. Somebody asked me a few months ago, Okay, Mark, 
you've been through the first printing, you're in your second printing now, the book's doing fine. What does it really mean to you at this point? And I'd, I'd never really thought of it until he asked that question. And I realized that the, the most significant aspect to having this book out there is that now, should something happen to me, God forbid, and I shuffle off this mortal coil, my kids will always have a piece of me and, and some of my wisdom in this book, such as it is, they'll always be able to hear my voice through those words. And, I, and that has become incredibly meaningful for me. And that's not an uncommon refrain as I talk to my author friends. You know, having a book out there is a meaningful legacy. So that's kind of where it came from, what it's become. And it's, it's quite fun for me to get it out there. Wow, what a great way to lock in legacy. So as an author and going through the whole writing experience, what do you feel your biggest learning experience was overall? Oh my goodness, I had no idea what it took to produce a book. It's not rocket science that an author writes a manuscript, right? I mean, everybody can figure that part out. But once the manuscript is done, what now? And I told you my friend Mark has, has become my mentor. He, he's written several books now. And so at each step in the process, I, you know, I, I call him up and say, hey, Mark, I've done with the manuscript, but I, I think I need to have some editing done from, you know, the reading that I've done. And he said, yeah, you're absolutely right. Next step is to have the book edited. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And he said, well, that's all right. I do. Call this number. And it was just that simple. I called up uh, Jennifer Thomas out in Los Angeles with Beyond Words Editing. She became my partner in this process and did a magnificent job. And for any of your listeners who uh, need a good editor, I can absolutely put you in touch with her. I would love to do it. I highly recommend her. But that was just one step in the process. Then there was the questions, do I want this to be a paperback or a hardback? And, you know, there are philosophical thoughts behind that. Well, I just chose, as you know, hardcover. So I needed a dust jacket. So I called up Mark again and said, hey, Mark, I, I think I need a dust jacket. And he said, yeah, you're right, you do. I said, well, I don't, I don't know how to do that. He said, don't worry, I do. Here, call this number. And so I called uh, Lisa Connor here in uh, one of the suburbs of Denver, an absolute magician as a graphic artist. She came up with a beautiful, beautiful cover uh, that I'm incredibly proud of. And so you may be starting to see a theme here. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I, I enlisted a mentor uh, who could guide me through the process. And then I surrounded myself. I hired a team of people who were smarter than me. It's one of the things they, they hammered on at the academy was, you know, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you if you want to be successful. And, and so I was able to do that, and that's one of the reasons the book has turned out as beautifully as it did. I, I can't take credit for most of the stuff in the book, uh, but there are several steps in that process. And then little details like, you know, all the front matter. When you open up a book, you get look at behind the title page, and there's all kinds of, you know, there's a copyright notice. There's a... Uh, there's an ISBN number, the, the Library of Congress number. And on the back of the book is the barcode, the ISBN, International Standards Book Number. Those, those kind of things, they, they don't happen by magic. There's a process for that. And again, my team was able to shepherd me through that process. Mark and, and Jennifer and Lisa, they made sure that all those details were covered uh, such that even though it was self-published, it's a very legitimate book that uh, would sit comfortably. And in, in fact, it does sit comfortably at the local independent bookstore here in Denver, one of the largest independent bookstores in the country called the Tattered Cover. I had it on the shelf there in Tattered Cover right next to Wayne Dyer and some of the other personal development authors. I, I learned that I needed to connect with a mentor and then hire this team who could take me through all the technical aspects 
that I had no idea. I mean, yeah, here, here's just an example. Uh, you've seen some of the graphics in right, my book. Right, right, beautiful. Th- well, thank you for that. My interior layout designer, who also happened to be my editor, Jennifer, Jennifer Thomas did the interior layout. She had to lay out every single page and make sure that the text flowed properly from page to page, that the graphics set properly on the page itself within the text. And at the top of the page, we take the page numbering and the chapter titles, and and there's even a little graphic of a conductor's baton at the top of each page. Those things don't happen by magic. Somebody has to lay those things out. I had no idea. It was quite the education for me to learn how once the manuscript is done, there's another whole process so uh, to, to produce an actual book. Mm-hmm. That's, that to me feels like where the real work starts, you know, taking place. <laughs> the well, it, manuscript it just flows and then the real work starts because, you, you know, you're going through some uncharted waters, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that for an author, the hardest part, the most important part is the process of getting the words out of your head into the laptop and getting the manuscript done. And in many cases, it flows like you say. In other cases, uh, you know, it's it's more of a process of, of being faithful to the work. You know, yeah, once that's done, then our job as the author is fundamentally done. The, the real work of, of editing and laying out and, and producing the book that can be and properly is handed off to other experts. Yes, it was. It's a learning journey for sure. Let's talk about your book for just a minute. But before we do, let's talk about that major setback you had with the biking accident and what you uncovered through that entire experience. Uh, Yeah. So uh, back in May of 2012, I was over in Moab, Utah, which is a mountain biking mecca. Uh, I was over there with a bunch of friends of mine who go there every year. The very first day of that ride, we were on the Porcupine Rim Trail. It's a segment of a trail if you're, if for your leaders who are mountain bikers. It's part of the, the whole enchilada. Uh, anybody who's ever been to Moab knows about Porcupine Rim. About 45 minutes into that ride, I saw a little half-buried log in the trail. It wasn't a big deal. And I remember thinking, I'm either going to have to jump that or go around it. That's the last thing I remember from the ride. The next thing I remember is waking up, recognizing I was still on the trail, but I wasn't on my bike anymore and I wasn't moving and my right arm was paralyzed. And long story short, uh, very shortly after that, we found out the reason my arm was paralyzed was because my neck was broken. You know, I got I got a helicopter ride out of it, you know, got to go up to Grand Junction and, and go through a whole process. But at the end of the day, I was the luckiest man alive, even though my neck was broken in five places, there was no spinal cord damage. Ultimately, I was able to pretty much fully recover. Like you say, it's quite a story. It's, the whole story is, is far beyond the scope of the podcast here. But for anybody who wants to know the story, obviously, it's in the book or you can give me a call. I'll tell you the story. But it set me back. I couldn't fly while I was in the process of recuperating. And I didn't know until the end of that process whether I was ever going to be able to fly again. And the the recovery process was remarkably short. I was only out of flying for about 90 days. Oh, wow. So, but during those 90 days, I had the opportunity to reflect and figure out how I was going to respond to this massive challenge that fortune had thrown my way. Reflection is great. It was uh, you know, an opportunity for me to think back, okay, 
this is tough. This is hard. I may have lost my career. Who knows how this is going to turn out? But I've been in hard places before. By the time this occurred, I'd been through the Air Force Academy. I'd flown in combat. I'd done, you know, a whole bunch of other things that were hard. And, And so I was able to recognize I'd fought hard battles before. And I had the tools to get through this. Now, so here's an important point. Plato told us over 2,000 years ago to be kind for everyone we meet is fighting a hard battle. And Kristen, that tells me something about you. And it tells me something about your readers. And by the time you've been through life to get to where you are today, you've been through some other hard battles. And every one of those battles has given you a tool to put in your tool bag that you can carry forward for the rest of your life that will help you fight the hard battles yet to come. So I spent those 90 days reflecting on that reality. And one of the biggest reflection points for me was thinking about my mentor, Mark Hogue, guy I mentioned just a few minutes ago. See, something I haven't told you yet about Mark is that in addition to being an airline pilot, he's also an author and a speaker, obviously. He was my, my writing mentor. And he went through the bankruptcy at the airline just like me. And he took the pay cuts just like me, but he was unable to make his monthly payments. So he lost his family home to foreclosure and bankruptcy. And then about the same time, he was diagnosed with cancer, not once, but twice. Uh, the surgery was successful both times, but the second time, the cancer was in his thyroid and there was a complication of the surgery. One of the nerves that controls his vocal cords was nicked and he was left without a voice. And what I haven't told you about Mark Hogue yet is that uh, in addition to, to being a pilot, well, I have kind of referred to it, he actually travels all over the country teaching our, our high schoolers, middle schoolers, and elementary school kids how to live lives without limits. But now he couldn't talk. So I got to watch him through that whole process and how he chose to respond to those heavy, heavy challenges. And I asked him about that several months after his vocal cords healed up. and We were having a conversation. I said, how, do, how does that work? How can you be this optimistic, fun-to-be-around guy that I know you to be? And he said, he said you know, it's simple. Sometimes life kicks you where it hurts, and you can either lay there and moan, or you can get up and move on with what's important. And because he chose to get up, he was able ultimately to recover from his financial challenges and from his surgical complications. And today he's back out there, you know, traveling all over the country, talking to high school students, talking to, you know, big tech companies like I talked about before. Right back at it. He chose to get up. He chose not to give up. I could hear his voice while I was recovering, sitting there on the, on the couch, you know, watching NCIS reruns through a morphine-induced haze. And I could hear him, you know, what are you going to do, Hardcastle? Are you going to lay there and moan? Are you going to get up? You know, the process is simple. It's not necessarily easy. Like him, you know, I thought, okay, well, you know, I've got two choices. What am I going to do? And obviously, at the end of the day, I, I got back up, got back to work. 18 months later, you know, my book was finished, and I was back to flying. And so here I am. But that was sort of the process I went through to decide how I wanted to respond to this particular challenge. I would offer that, again, to your listeners. You've been through challenges before. You've got these tools. Use those tools and then use this particular challenge to put more tools in your tool bag. You're going to have more challenges down the road. One of the things that I've observed, I just had this conversation with my 18-year-old just a couple of days ago. Sometimes life is hard, but that's okay because life is also good. And it's been my observation that frequently the good stuff comes out of the hard stuff. I challenged Cameron, my son, to do the hard things in life because that's where the good stuff is. You know, we can look for an easy life. We can look for the easy way. But there's frequently less reward in that. 
Absolutely. I love that. And just listening to the story of the accident and really your mentor, Mark, and his story, you speak a lot about response and reflection. Let's talk about that real briefly as an airline pilot. Response and responding to an emergency situation is a big deal. How do you connect the two between responding in your life to your career as an airline pilot? You know, the timing here is interesting. It's only been a few weeks since a major accident occurred. I, I would imagine that most of your listeners have, have heard about the uh, Southwest Airlines uh, engine failure at altitude, a catastrophic engine failure, engine blew up. And I've had a number of folks ask me, okay, Mark, how do pilots prepare for something like that? And the reality is we talk about those kinds of things all the time. It's a mindset for us. Beyond that, we are required to go into the simulator for two or three days every nine months and practice through these emergency situations. So what we're doing is we are preparing for challenges, for difficult eventualities. We're always preparing and creating this mindset that will allow us to respond when these challenges occur. So there's a lesson there. Study, prepare, critique, correct, and then go back and prepare some more. So when these things actually happen, and here's another lesson that we can apply to life, because we have prepared, we are able to respond thoughtfully than react in a knee-jerk fashion. Most of us don't smoke anymore, but I I, I love this story. Uh, The guy who broke the sound barrier, a fellow by the name of Chuck Yeager, was a test pilot out at Edwards Air Force Base. As a test pilot, he ran into situations like this all the time. It was not unusual for him to have an onboard fire or an engine failure or some other critical emergency. But he learned that if he could respond thoughtfully rather than react quickly, that he, he always had a better outcome. Bad things happen when we react quickly without thinking. So he was a smoker. He carried a pack of cigarettes in his sleeve pocket. And whenever he got a, a warning light in the cockpit, before he did anything else, he would mentally reach over, pull a cigarette out of his pocket, put it in his lips, light it up, take a couple of drags, and then analyze the situation. So he, he forced himself to not react. We've adopted that mentality as airline pilots. Uh, We have trained ourselves that there are are certain steps we take in any critical situation. The first thing we do is fly the airplane. The second thing we do is silence the warning. Turn out the warning lights, silence the bell so we can think as, as the process unfolds. And then the third thing is confirm the emergency. Make sure something is really wrong before we start shutting down engines. Those are the big three at my airline. Now, I take that and I follow on what I learned in the Air Force. In the Air Force, it was maintain aircraft control, same thing as fly the airplane, Then analyze the situation and take appropriate action. So that's another way of expressing the same thing. And then finally, land as soon as conditions permit. So in the case of the Southwest folks, the the engine blew up. The first thing they did was continue to fly. Just fly the airplane. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing life. Silence the warning. Confirm the emergency. Yeah, they know food and had something they needed to do. They flew the airplane took appropriate action. Now, here's the thing. As you analyze the situation that you're in, think about really what is appropriate here. I don't want to just react. I get myself in more trouble if I do that. As a pilot, we figure out what's going on and then we choose the appropriate checklist and run it. So in life, okay, this bad thing seems to be happening. Let me think about this. All right, what's really appropriate? Let's do that. 
And then finally, the Southwest pilots chose not to continue to their destination. They had to come up with an alternate plan. They landed in Philadelphia instead of, I think they were heading to Dallas, someplace in Texas. Don't quote me on that, but they realized they needed to alter the plan. The most appropriate thing to do was to divert into an alternate destination. So I think that's a great template for how we can respond to challenges that fortune throws our way. Just Continue to fly. Fly the airplane. Analyze the situation. Take appropriate action. Choose which checklist is the right one to run. Run it. And then decide where you want to land and go there. Uh, It doesn't have to be overly complex. Absolutely. And the important thing is, is to make sure that you prepared for that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. So, like I said, that's that's the primary reason for pilots. We are there to make sure it unfolds safely. In your case or my case, as we prepare for a, a stage presentation in front of hundreds of people, you know, what, what could possibly go wrong here? <laughs> let's, let's see if we can come up with a contingency plan. Oh, and then realizing right. that, you know, there, there are things that are going to happen that are beyond our control. And, okay, so if that happens, then I'm just going to continue to fly and, and uh, we'll respond appropriately. Yep, absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful. So as we wrap up, I would like to ask you for three quick takeaway points that you want your readers to know and to look for when reading your book. Great. So uh, three quick points. Point number one is whatever it is you want to do, you can. You just need to know you can. Nothing is impossible with proper mindset. It's always mind over matter. Now, I I realize this is a generalization. There's some things, I mean, uh, a quadriplegic is not going to hike up Mount Everest. So it's a a generalization. In general, figure out what you want to do and get after it. Know that you can. There's more to that, obviously, that I teach my coaching clients. There's a process for figuring out how, how, you know, how to do it. So the second thing is we tend to overcomplicate. Like I said before, life can be simple. It's not necessarily easy. The good stuff frequently comes with the hard things, so do the hard things. Like I say, it, it's simple. There, there are three steps that I teach my clients in figuring out whatever you want. The first thing is figure out what it is that you want to do. And that's harder than it sounds, but I've got six questions that will take somebody right to the heart of that matter. So figure out what you want to do. Second part of that is get beyond the, I don't know how to do that, to let me figure this out. The third thing is simply begin. Figure it out, what it is you want to do. Second is figure out how to do it, and then begin. And again, each of those three points has some sub points that I gladly talk with your listeners about. And a third point is probably the most important. Stay in the process. Now you've you've heard of the 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 myth of or the of well yeah, it is the myth of, of three feet from gold about the miner who tunnels and tunnels and tunnels and then gives up because he hasn't hit the gold, sells the mine, the next guy comes in, tunnels for two more feet, hits the mother load. You stay in the process until you get to where you want to be. Forgive me for stating the obvious, but you can't get where you want to be if you stop while you're still short of the goal. So mm-hmm. those are the, those are three things. Those are huge three things. And where do you find your book? How can the listeners get their hands on this book? Well, thank you for that. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, the title of the book is The Symphony of Your Life, Restoring Harmony When Your World is Out of Tune. And you can find it uh, by title, by my name, Mark Hardcastle. It's also available it's available in hardcover and also as an ebook in whatever format uh, is your favorite ebook format. So you can find it there. 
if you want to go to my website, there's a link to it there. Uh, there's a link to it on my blog. So, you know, pretty much you find me online anywhere and, and you can you can find my book through that. Sure. Can you share your website for everybody? Yeah, gladly. My website is symphonyofyourlife.com. You know, I, I'm on uh, Facebook, fundamentally the same title. It's The Symphony of Your Life. I have a personal page, Mark Hardcastle on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn, Mark Hardcastle speaker. I'm on all the social media, Twitter, you know, whatever. So um, pretty easy to find for somebody who'd like to find me out there. And I know there are many people that would like to. And I'm just so honored that you've joined me on the Live to Lead podcast today as a guest. You know, you've really shared and served up a tremendous amount of takeaways for listeners today. And I appreciate you. And I hope to have you back on the show. Kristen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, You're a great host. Thank you for the opportunity. I'd, I'd love to do it again. What an incredible conversation with airline pilot and author Mark Hardcastle. It is my sincere hope that you were able to take away some mega epic gems from that podcast. I know for me, I took away the importance of responding thoughtfully and not responding quickly. I took away how important it is to prepare, to prepare well, and to know what checklist you need to take out when you are ready to restore harmony in your life. Again, thank you for tuning in. If coaching or mentoring is something that you're interested in and you're ready to embark upon that mega challenge, let's have a conversation. Please check me out at www.kristensmithworldwide.com. Until then, be unstoppable.